from man's sweat and God's love, beer came into the world. Amen. Welcome back to the things that you once believed in. Welcome back to what you knew was right from the start. Welcome back to the Go to Hell podcast. Strong opinions weekly held about Christianity, church, and beer. Thank you for joining us for episode three of our series, To Be or Not to Be. Here are your hosts, Tim Curley and Colton Pierce. Okay, next question. What do two people, and again, this is why it has to do with the love question. Again, all these kind of like lead one after the other. You'll see how they kind of domino into each other. But what must two people have in common to connect? Hmm. That's a bullshit question. I don't like that question. It's it's too vague. Well, what must they have? Oh, to yeah. what? To uh, love? Oh yeah, like what is the oh what is the meaning of life? Is it vague at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> it says two people. What two people? All two people. What must all two people have in common in order enough to connect? Do they have to have a common goal? Chromosomes. I don't know. Chromosomes. No. Like okay. Like let's okay. Let, let's let's ask you more questions here. Right. I don't. I don't like this question. I don't find Tim's, this existential at all. Tim's Tim's feeling this is too much. Uh, okay. Let's go to okay. <clears throat> Do you have an answer? For why that? can't the Why can't the United States and Russia get along? <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> what must the what must the two of them have in common in order enough to connect? It's not what's no that it's not in in a, a thing of commonness. Oh, is it not? No, it's it, it's tribalism. So how do we get rid of tribalism? How must okay? How must any we get rid of tribalism in this case by getting uh, by coming up with infinite. Fusion energy that makes oil not a thing. You think that that's the only reason why the United States and Russia have conflict? No, it's it's bigger than that. Right. Okay. So then, what must they have in common in order enough to connect? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> What? I mean, humanity, common belief. Look, they're nominally Christian. Listen, you say, okay, so they're nom. Okay, right. So we're saying. It's Russian Orthodox, which is, is, if we're to be briefly on the subject, is, it's, I'm not saying, listen to me, those listening to this, I'm not saying it's not Christian, but it is. Much different than anything anyone in the United States is fam- familiar with, including Catholics. There's a lot that's different. Sure. Not on the fun, the let's say the two or three fundamentals, but everything else, it's very different. So, is there something that they need to be able to understand and know enough to be able to connect I don't with really one think- another? You're getting me in trouble because I don't really think they're the problem. We're the problem because we, we want to be white saviors to the world. You don't think that Russia invading the Ukraine is a problem? I do think it's a problem, but I think <laughs> it's a problem we've largely created. You're getting me into politics. And I it's going to get me into trouble with the 14 people that listen to this podcast. I think that when it comes to this particular instance with the United States and with Russia... Is that in order enough to connect, both sides need to recognize that lives have value. I think what's very difficult and what's very easy for a lot of people in high powerful positions that are able to drop bombs on cities. And also, again, let me reiterate, if those of you that are thinking that I'm just talking about Russia in this circumstance because I brought up Ukraine... You're absolutely wrong. That the United States thinks that it's okay that we can just drop bombs on cities 
that we can just invade. Oh, no, them. no, we're worse. We, oh, we, th- we, we think that by providing the weapons for someone else to do the work, that it's not quite as icky as us doing the work ourselves. Right, we sit there and we don't recognize that lives, we don't view them as lives. It's almost like everybody else in these positions of power are playing video games. And we... Oh boy, you're opening up a can of worms. I'm glad you did. I still say the question's bullshit because I was thinking <laughs> at a micro level, and so once you started, once you actually started going on the Russia thing, I started thinking about uh, mere Christianity and how what Lewis talks about uh, commonalities between groups. And he's basically talking about how we tribalism can be a problem, but sometimes we complain when we're an outsider out of our group. We complain about it and say, "Oh, it's cliquish," and it's not cliquish. It's just a group of people who have common interests, whether it be, to his example, cigars and some kind of alcohol, or I think he says a knitting club with the ladies. <laughs> yes, he does talk about the knitting uh, club. Because remember, he's writing this in the 50s or 60s. He's talking about the knitting club London, with the ladies, and, so, and he's talking about the boys at the bar with the right. scars. So, yes, yeah. uh, so I was thinking that. that that That's why it was... I thought it was too vague. But this is good. So, yes, look... This goes back to our American. This is a little bit of a of a of a side. That's it's not a sidebar. This is we've dealt with. What does it mean to be an American Christian? Are you an, a Christian American or American Christian first, or are you just a Christian? And the American part, even better, doesn't play into it. Which is our second most listened to podcast, by the way. Was good. It should be, and I hope someone hears what I'm about, about to say. Look, I I have spent my entire life. I wouldn't call myself a warmonger, as a leftist would, but I have been for a strenuous defense of the United States. I have believed in a world order of sorts. I have up until oh probably around 2006 maybe 2008 and it didn't have anything to do with Obama become becoming president he's a democrat and I nominally vote for a republican it was just again as i've said ad nauseum on this podcast rethinking my worldview and th- and saying to myself i think you look at your at the world more as an american as a christian and that's not how to look at it and say all that to say we as Americans view, if you don't agree with this, please, and you're listening to this, please send in a comment and send in a, a comment, a question, push back. If you are one of our friends who listens to this, bring it up in person. I'm about to say something very controversial and it even makes myself feel uncomfortable and hypocritical. We value freedom over human life, and that is not a Christian value. I don't think that that should be anybody's value. Well, let's just speak for ourselves. But you're correct. But it is a particularly Christian Western value. And I would say in the 21st century, our view of kind of to get back to what I started the podcast on my rant, our view of freedom is warped anyway. It's it's our ability to beyond say what the hell we want to say that's not really freedom it's bigger than that it's property rights and other things but putting that aside and i'm going to put aside the self-defense thing (laughs) i am i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna try to be fair and not put everything off the table right and if you're listening to this and you serve in the military and you believe in this i don't want to make you feel guilty serve out your time whatever but the church has the church has adopted this bullshit that somehow Jesus was all for individual freedom and that the United States was this manifestation of everyone living free. Nope. Freedom is I, I don't I'm I'm look, what I I prefer to live in a free world. I prefer to live in a world where I make my decisions. I'm responsible for my both my successes and my failures. I don't hang those on the fault of somebody else, including a government bureaucrat. But 
I don't believe it enough the older I get to go out and riot and do these other things that people want to do. I don't think that's a Christian thing to do. And yes, I don't want to live in a country where the church is not allowed to practice and we have to do it in private or not even do it at all and do it where it's illegal. Of course I want to live in that world. But to Colton's original, am I willing to kill over it? No. And I'm certainly not willing to engage in the dogs of war in a country that I'm not really sure is free, which is Ukraine. And we keep wanting to make it sound like this is... It's funny, this is a, a rehash of the of 2012-2010 where the left is mocking the right for trying to create Jeffersonian dem democracy in Iraq, which we were trying to do, which was utterly crazy. And yet we've flipped sides and now the left is trying to sell everyone that Ukraine's this Jeffersonian democracy that we've got to defend from the big bad Ruski both are warped. I'm no expert on on Ukraine, but I guarantee you it's not this free, wonderful, open society that we want to make it out to be. And even if it is, let's say it's fucking Star Trek, where everyone, where food is accessible from a machine and everyone can... Everyone's job is whatever intellectually they want to do. And it's just, we all do what we want to do. If someone came along and decided to end that world, that is not the number one value as a Christian to defend. The opposite side of that, I'm going to say this, Colton, you might not, I have no idea. Well, I, I think I do know. For those of you who are like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you stick it to the Republicans and someone listen to this. The other side of that, is also on babies. The I am sorry. I am more interested in seeing a baby see itself through a pregnancy than I am some woman's right to determine whatever she wants, which is ultimately an economic right, an economic decision as to whether or not things are going to work out for her. I'm sorry. If I'm being completely honest... It is more important we can, yes, we can have a debate on when gestation turns into human life and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, at the end of the day, this has always been my point of, I'm not sure when life happens, but I am going to make a mistake on the side of life. Yes, I'm sorry, as a Christian, over the rights of you as a female to make a choice over your body and what is good for you economically. I think that no, I, I, you say that I don't need to say anything about that, but I still say that what I think you are able to find in when it comes to political issues, when it comes to these types of issues, is it comes down to the what I had said originally is value of human life. We continue to dissociate throughout politics with human life i think that democrats claim that they value human life more um based off of their policies or their they are a bit more humanitarian than republicans i will admit from what i have seen and again also you know, what's always hard is you know when when we talk about democrat versus republican i basically I, I can't be a social science major because I, I switched, but I took enough classes to be a social science major. I think that just when we're talking about sociology, like it comes down to the value of human life. That's why when we just talked about when you said that you um, were talking about the abortion situation. Again, it's about the value of human life and giving it value. So many times in all of these situations, we sit there and we believe that we are removed and that freedom costs lives. That doesn't make any sense in the grand scheme of things. 
why must we expend other people's lives in order enough to protect what we feel like we need to protect? Not for like good reasons ever. Well, the and listen, just and I mean, just so we're clear, right now we have the Ukraine situation, and that's a huge issue. Yes, do not get me wrong. What Vladimir Putin is doing in Ukraine is not right. It's not okay. You should not be able to go into a country and just start bombing and killing people just because you feel like you want that territory or because you feel like it's yours. But that is something that I cannot I cannot impose on other people and so therefore the people that I have in my surroundings, I can only tell them, hey, regardless of this, we are we still need to value human lives and every single person needs to value human lives. No matter how worthless their life may be in your eyes, they still have value. This is a question that I ask my students on a regular basis, especially when we talk about something like the death penalty, is I ask students, how do you feel about the death penalty? And kids will split the room. Uh, they'll walk to either side on how they feel about death penalty. They'll either go right or they'll go left. I usually have them get up and move around. Um, I'll ask for their feedback. Perfect. And then I ask a trap question after that. And I say that it's a trap question, but it's actually the same the same question phrased differently is I ask, when does a human life reach zero value? Or I ask them, is there a point in a human's life where it will reach zero value? And what's crazy is that nobody will ever say that it ever reaches zero. All of my students will walk to the other side of the room and they'll say, nope, it never ever reaches zero. And I say, gotcha. Right. Because what you are saying is that that person's life no longer has value when you assign the death penalty. Or when you end a person's life, you say that it no longer has value. It's not worth our time. It's not worth our money. It's not worth our care. And so, and on a broader scale, war is saying that. Is saying that those people over there that think this, their lives are not worth anything. If they're willing to die and sacrifice their lives for their cause that goes against our cause, then their life is not worth anything. I think you're overstanding when you say it's not worth anything, but certainly our values are more important than theirs and it, the question's still the same. Whose values are you judging that on? It's a fair, I, I think it's a good exercise you take your kid, students through. It's a good one. But even taking my calculation of it's not worth zero, it's just worth less than mine. something else. The death penalty is a good one because the standard Christian response, which is, which I, again, I try to be very honest on this episode. I'm, I'm a recovering, what I don't know what to call it. But I'm a recovering American evangelical who, who's got a lot of bullshit ideas in their head. And if you're still that, that's fine. That I don't think you're not a Christian. I just, I disagree with you. I think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong in a cosmic sense. I admit that I might be wrong in a cosmic Jesus judging sense. But, you know, the, the classic, let's just call it conservative refrain is, well, you know, the Old Testament allows for putting people to death and uh, you take a life, you forfeit your life. What I would say now that at my age is the unfair characterization is the progressive answer is all life is important and eye for an eye doesn't work in the Jesus world. I think I've said on this podcast before, I don't believe in the death penalty anymore and I have two reasons for that one's and then my two main reasons I don't even know if are, are really that of a good reason in terms of what this conversation my two reasons are one I don't tr really trust the government and six the average 
six or 12 people sitting on a jury to make a decision as to whether or not someone's that guilty to be put to death. I'm sure there's plenty of situations where they are, but there are too many situations we've found out with modern technology like DNA that we've got it quote unquote slam dunk cases wrong that we need to rethink that. And two, I think it's better for Christians to spend their time rather than preaching law and order and defending the death penalty. They should be spending their time witnessing the the detritus of the world that we've shipped off to the worst kind of existence known to mankind, which is often 18 to 20 hours of complete isolation. And when they're not in that isolation, they're probably with jailers who don't have any compassion for the milers either. So it's basically 24-7 humanless existence. And we would be better off spending our time reforming our prisons, which Christianity did do. The church tried to do that. I think it made it worse. But we have tried to put our effort into that. Maybe we should try to reform prison again to where it's not as basically violent and people getting a PhD and being criminals from everything I read or just being the worst kind of like Lord of the Flies adult existence and trying to tell these people that even though their quote-unquote life is over their life is not over but we don't we'd rather have culture wars on why the death penalty is imperative to living so I, I don't want to live in that world anymore i would rather live on the side of all life is meaningful including sorry the jeffrey dahmers and as we talked about yes ultimately the hitlers we have to live in that mindset yeah again it doesn't make and what we talked about before is it doesn't make what they did the, giving them life and the opportunity to live is not accepting and approving of what they did. We no. need we need to walk away from that mentality. That's a that's a terrible idea that we have adopted. Is that we continue to think that and what's crazy is that we think that millions of deaths like in the Hitler situation, can be resolved with one death. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right? Like we sit there and say, we need Putting just... Putting Mengele to death because we need we just, catch him. We need justice and retribution. And so if we kill Hitler, well then... That, yeah, th you know, th that's a great point. If that person is every bit as to who you think that they are... They don't live. They don't live by the worldview you live by. So they don't ultimately give a shit that you're putting them to death. Hitler killed himself. That's how much he didn't give a shit about your your policies. Well, because he, you could sit there and say he took a coward's way out. No, no, he he lived in the world of might means right, and he knew that his might was being overrun by russian soldiers let's be honest it was russians not british or americans and he didn't want to face the eye for an eye that was going to come to him he died <laughs> he knew exactly the world he was living in i want to say this too look we do live in a world of nuance and we've we had a whole debate on self-defense and I think there's value to that. It's one thing to have someone break into your house and you react. I will say it's hard to be, be, oh, you know, someone's breaking into your house and you've got two kids in the house and your wife and there's a crazy guy on whatever and you'd be like, oh, no, 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 what would Jesus do? He would love this guy. He would love this guy. We're going to defend ourselves, right? Well, let's take that at a macro level. I get that. If we're the United States and we're being attacked, I get that visceral response much more. But we have stuck our noses in a lot of things where, yes, our interests at some level are involved. But we talk ourselves into getting things where 
if we're re- really being honest, it's a lot of nuance to say, oh, we've got to stick our nose into this. We've got to stick our nose into that. So, all right. I think we've killed that. All right. Question 15, which means that there's nothing like our fourth question in the night. This is going to be like a six-part, six-episode does absolute power corrupt absolutely? Ooh, that's a good one because that comes from the uh, Lord Acton, c- commonly comes from the Lord Acton phrase. And a lot of people who are Lord Acton fans say that's not what Lord Acton meant. And I've gone back and read what Lord Acton said and what he meant. And no, actually, you can say that that's not what he meant, but that's really what he meant. I have a response to this, but I mean. Well, you go with yours first. I think the easy answer is no. And the reason why I say that that's the easy answer is because I believe that God has absolute power. And therefore, I believe that he cannot oh, well. be corrupted. <laughs> I was thinking that from a purely anthropological... <laughs> yes, I got... I'm ready for that, too. I'm ready for that, too. And so, yes, I do think that... So, in that concept... No. So if you think that God is corruptible, no. Us, on the other hand, I think that in our human nature, I think some people are able to resist it better than others. There are people that have good souls, good spirits, good head on their shoulders, whatever it is that you want to call it, that are able to resist the power of or the temptation that power ultimately gives. But I do believe that absolute power will tempt. I think that it's a slow grad... Again, depending on the spirit and the soul of the person, I think that it it's... And the discipline of that person, I think that it takes place... It's gradual over time, but then eventually it will lead... Um, to that I think that that's what you saw there's there were good people that were able to take power and they were perfect by no means even if they were good people Um, and then heirs took thrones or the next people came in line and took advantage of the power that was there and they were and they corrupted it further Um, and so that's very difficult to see I think that ultimately we will all give in to whatever our human nature is and we will abuse power in some aspects. Some are some more intricately than others or more or more aggressively than others. And so I just think that that's a natural response because we're just human. I don't blame people for doing it, but it's just it's it's just a fact of life, in my opinion. So, I've listened to your answer, and I'm glad I did, because it got my mind thinking. I, people, Some folks who listen to this probably think we don't value the Old Testament very much. I'm going to show you why we maybe not take it literally, but it is absolutely invaluable. I'm going to say the, the ma- axiom is true, and we can see that from the Old Testament, because... What happens in the Old Testament? God gives the Israelites judges, which is essentially dispersed power. Right. He didn't want there to be a king. He did not want to be a king. He dispersed power with leaders over the tribes, uh, understanding probably, yes, they have absolute power over their tribes, but if you're the tribe of, uh, oh boy, all the tribes are... Anyway, if you're if you're a member of one tribe and your judge is being a dick and you, you hey why are you acting this way that you know the the leader over there is not acting that way, it keeps people in check. And what do the Israelites do? No, we want a king like everybody else around us. So they get a king, and what happens? Saul gets absolute power and is absolutely corrupted, absolutely corrupted. And he's replaced by David, who is said to be God's uh, man after God's own heart. And even David, 
He's not absolutely corrupted. In fact, this is why I think he's mentioned. It's He's not a man after God's own heart because of the great things he does. It's because he recognize, he, he, he sins, he recognizes it, he repents, he, sin, he keeps sinning, he keeps coming back, but every time he keeps coming back, he understands who God is. But he is corrupted. He's not absolutely corrupted, but he is corrupted because of the power he's given. So, and David is, <laughs> to take this even further, David is the exception of the kings that Israel is given. There is maybe one other good king after that, a uh, son of some somebody. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I got you. Israel gets split up into two kingdoms. <clears throat> one goes all in on paganism. The other one doesn't. But the point is... It's Judea. So whenever you see that there is Judea, that was the separation where... What would have been the tribe of Judah? Um, for those of you that are playing along, they decided to continue to follow in the tribe of Israel, which was everyone other than the people that was of the tribe of Judah, decided to give in to paganism and all this kind of stuff. And the tribe of Judah was like, "No, we're not. We're not participating in that. We're still following and that kind of stuff." And so that was where they were able to kind of create this different section of which themselves. is interesting because Jesus doesn't come out of Judea, which is the one that stays faithful. Right. He comes out of. Uh, he, he, God allows that, again, if we're being literal on this, and I'm fine being literal on, on this part, he comes out of the one that does turn away. Anyway, so I think it does. Look, in the grand scheme of things, in <coughs> what I was talking about two questions ago, if everyone, perfect world, everyone's being Ted Lasso, bumbling their way through, trying to live like Jesus, yeah, power doesn't corrupt. I If... I would like to say that if I was president of the United States, you'd give me a lot of power and it wouldn't corrupt me. And, and and so, sure. But the problem with power is <laughs> this isn't really a Christian thing. This is, this is an existential thing, just a secular existential thing. It is often the good we think we are doing that corrupts us. Right. It is not the bad things we are doing. Right. Because is. we do live in a society where there's a rule of law and et cetera, et cetera. And when we, tr when we convince ourselves, well, I'm doing the right thing, even though I'm not allowed to do it as president of the United States or I'm not allowed to do it, you know, whatever. But I'm doing the quote unquote right thing. It's always the quote unquote right thing that corrupts us. It's not being the Hitler. One of my favorite lines... Uh, this is actually, uh, <laughs> there's a book series, um, and it's now a Netflix show series, but they talk about, one of my favorite things that they talk about is constantly the main character has to decide between the lesser of two. Are you talking about the Witcher? Yeah. As <laughs> he has to talk about, he has to decide between the lesser of two evils and one of the main character's uh, greatest lines is that he says, if I have to choose between the lesser of two evils, I'd rather not choose at all. Yeah. And yet he is constantly being forced to have to choose, even after he says that I'd rather not choose at all. The situation requires him to make a choice. Well, and to get back to, to the original question, that is the... The problem with power is it is often asking you to do the lesser of two evils. And ultimately, the more you're asked to make those questions, you find yourself four years later, let's say as a president of the United States, or eight years later, finding yourself politically at best, if not morally bankrupted by the dis decisions you have to make for yeah. the quote-unquote greater good. So, uh, yeah. We had a we had a discussion on whether or not one could be a Christian and president of the United States. I think you can be if you don't 
if you're not willing to be elected in four more years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's four, four years and done. Yeah, I was like, if you're willing to be four years and done, then you can I'm the, see you later, bitches. That's right. <laughs> All right, question 16. Uh, this one's pretty simple. Well, it's not simple. I don't think it's an easy answer. I think that a lot of our questions tonight are going to have to do with our original topic. Um, what is the universal language, Tim? Hmm. Well, the easy answer to that is love, but what is love? Well, we talked about that tonight. So we already answered what is love. So So the world So let's okay, let's let's tackle this in a Let's try to tackle this in a respectful way. So I'm going to say this, and I hope if someone's not a believer who's listen, a Christian who's listening to this, I am. I'm not doing this in a caricature. I would say the love right, the world right now would say love is the universal language is loving someone, and that is not judging someone for who they are. Mm. And while I, <laughs> while part of me understands that and what's what i was struggling with before of love means sometimes telling someone they're doing something wrong that's not what the definition of love is and you can i'm not going to go into examples you can leave you can let your imagination run wild with examples of what someone wants to be and that's how love is so what a proper well, let me stick on that. So, well, yeah, rather than just be mealy-mouthed about it. So if you're if you're someone of the world, that means if I am homosexual, oh, so 1990s, or trans, or whatever the other many things it is, and again, don't take that as me just being, I, look, I can't keep up. I'm not trying to dismiss it. Nope, you're not. Don't worry. There's more identifications now than there are letters in the alphabet. So please bear with my 20th century brain. Um, They will show you grace. (laughs) As a believer, I, I would say some Christians think that it's my job to tell that person that they're woefully confused. They haven't been created as God wanted them to be created. And... They're, or they're just flat out wrong and sinful. And I would say where I'm at as a believer is for me as a Christian to say love is not to me to be to accept it and say, yeah, that's fine. It's for me to hopefully convince that person, I don't get where you're at. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm not even sure that it's morally correct in God's view. But... I hope to God you hear me when I say I want to be your friend. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to better understand where you're at. And I want to be with you wherever your journey is on where you're at. Right. And ultimately, my identification is as a Jesus follower. And I hope your identification is as a Jesus follower. And if that identification means you are some strange version of him her and again i'm not trying to mock it it's just i can't like whatever but you're a jesus follower i don't get it my view of christianity doesn't square with those two things but you say it and so let's find common ground as to who jesus is and what they mean in our life but except but i got to be clear with this except that i have a problem with it if if me if you have a problem with me not problem with it if you have a problem with me not understanding it, or yes, possibly having a problem with it, I'm sorry, I can't help you. We've got to be able to meet halfway. I think what is really good about this is I think that Tim hit the n- nail on the head with the whole love thing is the universal language. So I think that we have the same answer, and I'm just going to back up what Tim is saying. When it comes to this whole situation, I think a lot of times that we view how we are supposed to respond to people that are non-Christians is that we, again, we sit there and we sit and we sit and we say this unconditional love part. And so we view them in the same way that we view children. 
So we sit there and say, yes, I love them, right? You think of your child, and I mean, I've never had children, but yet I still am able to sit there and say with what other people have experienced, and they sit there and say with their five... Do you have an idea of what it is to be a parent? Sure. People are talking about what it is with their five-year-old. Their five-year-old misbehaves. Their five-year-old doesn't do with what God wants them to do. And so what you do is you reprimand them or you spank them. Right. That is how Christianity has chosen to react to lots of people of of a variety of different viewpoints and such. You're what being I, charitable? Well, wait. You're being charitable? I would say it's more like the promiscuous 16-year-old who's kicked out of the house because he or she is whoring around and the parents are upset that they are so they can't live in the house but okay. sure i was just i was just making you're, more be, you're of an, being you're being I, generous i was giving an analogy and i was saying that this is i, I still think that to a five-year-old being spanked is at the equivalency of being kicked out of the house as a 16 year old okay now i'm gonna say yeah you haven't had kids yet <laughs> i just remember being a five-year-old and i was like this is death like you have spanked me you have killed me um but actually what I would prefer that, and I mean, like, for some people, this is a stretch because they're like, what do you mean? Like, and so maybe it's not that accessible for a lot of people, but actually how you should view other people of other beliefs and sinful acquaintances, whatever it may be, is you should view them as your child, yes. And the fact that you unconditionally love your child, if you unconditionally love your child, that's important also as well. But as a full-grown adult. As the prodigal son. As a prodigal son. You don't sit there, you don't spank, you don't reprimand. And even for me, like as a teacher, right, I have students like, and, and this may not be relatable to some of you, you guys are like, that doesn't make any sense. But this is something that I choose to do every single time. And I, and again, this may be something that's super bizarre to all of you. Um, but this is something that's extremely important in my classroom that I make a note of every single time. Is I have heard over and over again from teachers about how irritating it is for students to show up late to their class. They are so frustrated. They hate students showing up late to their class. They get angry. They say that these kids should be given detention or whatever. I have an answer for that. but Anytime a student note. shows up late to my class, I turn to them. I make strong eye contact and I say, hey. And I call them by their name. And I say, I'm glad you're here. I don't mark them tardy in my... In my, in my book, and I could probably get fired for this no matter how late they are. <laughs> it, just so we're clear, tardies are a bullshit. Like, it, it, schools only care about whether or not they're here or they're absent. That's what they care about. The tardy thing is actually for disciplinary issues. But when a kid walks into my classroom and they walk in late, all that I care about is the fact that they're there. And so my argument is that we should be that way when it comes to our faith. Is if somebody walks into our church and they ha have whatever it is, they know that they're fucking late. They know the problems. But we need to celebrate and be happy over the fact that they're there. It's not sarcastic. I speak fluent sarcasm. But I guarantee you that when I look into their eyes and I sit there and say, hey, I'm glad you made it. I say it with the most intention that I could ever give anything that I ever give to my students. No matter how frustrated I am over the fact that they just missed the entire fucking lesson and I got to <laughs> walk over there and I got to give them the whole damn spiel over again. But in all legitimacy, I'm just glad that they're there. Because somebody's got to be happy that they're fucking there. Yeah. And so if we're over here not giving two shits and we're saying like blah, 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 
I don't care. Because tough love, that's no good. In my opinion. Okay, a couple things. Tim wrote on a sticky note. I did. I wrote a couple things. And I didn't write the third one. I just thought of another one. So this will probably be... Well, you can respond to what I have no, to say. No, no, This will no. be the end of it. Because we're deep in. One, the teachers who don't like being like kids being late... That's because they were good students yeah, when they were true. kids, and so like, they expect, why can't you be and then they became time? teachers who expect everyone else to be good students, just because, yeah, you're the weirdo. So they are the weirdos. Two, fucking nerd. Which is why we should have more <laughs> teachers who actually weren't good students. I've had this conversation with multiple teachers. The world would be better with teachers who weren't actually good students, because they act they do have a little more. Understanding. Anyway, uh, to to this whole meeting people where they're at, love is calling people out for some sin. They're. It's funny the people who are most adamant about you know all, you know it's the love to call someone out because they're fornicating or whatever. These are the same people who really not always. But if we're going to do a Venn diagram, if you don't know what a Venn diagram is, Google it. We're going to do a Venn diagram. I would say the Venn diagram of the people who believe that and believe in the power of the Holy Spirit are pretty much the same circle. If you really believe that, then leave it to the Holy Spirit to tell this person Maybe it's time not to think of yourself as non-binary, if that's your thing. <laughs> but you're not going to be the one that makes them go, oh, yeah, you know what, right, I will, I've been confused this whole time. And, uh, yes, thank you, Patty, for pointing it out. Right. That's item two. Item three. Uh, you brought up basically creating a classroom to meet people where they're at. I'm glad you brought this up because I was going to bring it up as a hot topic. Let's let's end this. Let's actually end the episode as a hot topic that rolls into this. There's this new movie that's out, uh, The Jesus Revolution. I have not seen it. Uh, my mom has seen it because she wanted, she lived it. Well, I mean, she wasn't actually a Jesus freak, but she was alive when it happened. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I, I haven't seen it yet. I want to see it. I suggest everyone see the movie. Yes, I know if you're probably listening to this, oh my goodness, Christian movies are the worst. They're cheesy. They're awful. I have no idea how if this movie is really good or not. It's it's. <laughs> I will say this. It's PG-13, so it's not like completely schmaltzy. I don't know if there's language in it or what. If you are unaware of the story, the story is about the Jesus Freak movement. The Jesus Freak movement was in the late 60s, early 70s. It's basically the hate Ashbury kids that made up Beatles fans and everybody that was listening to psychedelic music in the 60s and 70s. This was a generation of kids who were, for whatever reason disillusioned by their parents who came home from World War II and the Korean War. I think a lot of that was fathers dealing with a lot of shit that they saw, did not know how to communicate it. And methamphetamine. <laughs> either, well, mom was drugged up, as the Rolling Stones talked about, and dad just clammed up and didn't talk about anything and medicated himself at work through a lot of alcohol. So uh, that's a, gr a, a grand cliche, but I think it's true. Uh, people did not know how to deal with the horrors of not just World War II, but also just the shit that it took to live through the Depression. Sure. Family separated. Yeah. Just out of nowhere, because mom and dad can't pay for four, can't uh, take care of four kids, so we're going to send two kids off to live with. Yeah. There was a lot of trauma that we don't talk about. We talk about all the grand things that we did that 
that FDR did in, in the Depression and the great things we did in saving the world from for democracy. That took a lot of... Back-to-back -back World War champs, motherfucker. And then we throw in the Korean War, which no one wants to talk about. Anyway, these kids were disillusioned that's, at their worst... That's spring training. <laughs> yeah. Those don't count. At their worst... We see them riding in Chicago. We see them riding in, you know, in cities. Are you freaking the band Chicago? Like, no, no, you, uh, no. I'm talking about the, the Democratic. Uh, no, no, I, I, I fucked <coughs> that up. Who am I talking about? Who sings There's Blood on the Streets in the Streets of Chicago? Is it uh, um, Dylan? No, it's a band. Blood on the Streets, Streets of Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Anyway, no, don't. No, no, no. You effort that. I'll keep talking. Okay. Uh, it's a Los Angeles band. Oh, like modern band? No. The Doors? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The Doors. <laughs> it is the Doors. Um. Yeah. There's only one. It's funny. Of all of the '60s and '70s, there's only one LA band. It's the Doors. Yeah, Jim Morrison was at I UCLA know, Film a, School. I was specifically going. There. And everybody else was weird. Okay, anyway. Uh, yeah, the six, the, what we call hippies. This was largely a generation looking for answers. And they were looking for answers in drugs. They were looking for answers in the Beatles. <laughs> if you think I'm kidding, I'm not. People thought the Beatles were gurus. They were like literally dropping acid and looking at what the meaning of the White Late album was. Uh, they're look if the Beatles themselves were looking for meaning from uh, the dude, one of the Indian Hindu, uh, the Hindu guys in India. So anyway, this was a seeker generation. Yes, and a group of them, I think, from Haight Ashbury, led by Frisbee. Uh, his last name is Frisbee. Anyway, he comes across this guy, Chuck Smith, who's got a dying church. Chuck's at, he's feeling really bad because his church is dying. And this guy says, yeah, we're actually, basically, we're looking for a church that'll let us in because you guys don't like us. And it leads to this Jesus Freak movement. And there's wonderful music that comes out of it. There's a band called Love Song, which is basically like mm, Doobie Brothers, <laughs> Christian music. You're a liar. The The band that came out of this was DC Talk. No, DC Talk is 20 <laughs> years later. Love Song is literally out of the late 1970s. Chuck Gerard is the, is the leader. His daughter goes on to be a pretty prominent singer in the 2000s. Uh, anyway. The Jesus Freak movement changes. It's a big change in Christianity. Unfortunately, it died out, which is probably in line with what that entire generation, which we now call boomers, they all become yuppies and blah, 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 blah. And I bring this all up because it's been a common theme of this podcast. We need a Jesus movement today. We need a group of churches that will say, I'm not looking for upper middle class people to keep my church going. I'm not looking for evangelicals to keep my church going. We need a revolution. We're going to wrap this up with this. There's two things. One, Tim mentioned the Beatles. So I'm still... I'm still on our track of what do we need most in this world and it's love and the love that we originally talked about because again the Beatles said all you need is love love is all you need but also apart from that something that uh, a lot of people don't know is um, um, so in the early 1900s Psychology was really taking off and people were able to give experiments on lots of different things. Um, they would just forfeit their children over. They would just do whatever it is that they said. Um, and there's a lot of tests that were able to be ran that would not fly today. Yeah. 
There was a test that ran on infants. And it was, they asked all of their caregivers to provide for the children. They said they needed to give them every single thing that they possibly ever needed as far as physical demands, but yet they gave them no love. Yeah. They gave them no, um, they gave them no love is the best way that I can describe it. Every single baby that went through that process died. Yeah. We see this with old people. Yeah, they, you you do see this with old people. When, when someone if you have a loved one and they say, "Yeah, I'm done." They're they could be perfectly healthy. I'm telling you they'll probably die within a year. Yeah. And the human and, mind and the need for human touch and they need human interaction, human right? interaction, like, human purpose. Mm -hmm. It's it's human five or six different things. And when it comes to a, either a baby or I mean, this is why <laughs> it is not an excuse to look back at someone who's a sociopath and, and say, oh, that's why there's... It's not an excuse to say, yeah, they had shitty parents who didn't love them. It's to understand, yeah, this is what happens when we have parents who don't love someone. Right. They, exactly. might, they might die or they might turn into the next sociopath. That's right. And so with that, recognizing that love is an important part of who we are and so that we need to love other people and this is actually where we're going to go full circle back to Ted Lasso bit to where Ted Lasso admits in the second season that he never wants anybody to feel like they weren't valued or they weren't loved and that's what's going to make this third season that we're going to be watching that much more important is because Nate did not feel valued or loved no matter how much Tim or not Tim. <laughs> yeah. I, no matter I, how much Tim gave you, it to Nate. Nate no, was a douchebag Indian that I just did or Packy that I didn't like. So <laughs> no matter how much Ted gave it to him. And so like that's a huge element that I'm excited to see develop over time is hopefully we get to see a really good redemption arc for Nate. Um, but again, Ted's love will be able to consume um, that, that whole situation. Um, and hopefully it conquers all in that. So um, again, where it's this idea of I'm going to love you no matter what. Um, no matter what. And love is the most important thing. My mind's running wild. Because he said on more than one occasion, it's been a, a bit of a trope on the show where people who don't believe him and he keeps saying, I'm going to keep telling you until you... Until you believe Until it. you believe me that I don't care about wins and losses. I care about people... That's right. ...being their best. People feeling like they're loved, all that. And so <laughs> I could see the show ending... Where we think it's going to be his team winning the championship, but it's actually Nate's because Nate becomes the loving mentoring coach instead of what looks like he's going to be, which is this very uh, dark uh, analytical coach who's just all about regiment and plays and this, that, and the other. And that halfway through the season, he comes to believe, oh, I now know what Ted's talking about. And we see Ted's team doesn't actually win, which is what we're programmed to see. Right. But Nate's team wins, which is the, I don't remember what team he's coaching. He's for West Ham. They're never uh, going to win. West Ham. The Hammers are never going to win. And dude. Ted's going to say, I won. Right. Which is a completely unworldly statement to say. I have this player, Jamie, who's finally operating as a selfless player. Well, I have we'll this... see in this season. Yeah, ideally. Ideally. We're going to see. I'm excited to see you this next season, but I mean... <laughs> you don't know this song, Tim? I know the song. Okay. 
course I know the song. It's not their best one. Regard Town of Chicago. <laughs> What's the best door song? What's the best door song? Riders of the Storm. L.A. Woman. Or Peace Frog? You're not even going to include Peace no, Frog? Okay, I'll include okay, that one. Okay, okay. We'll do like five. I'm a big Peace Frog fan, so. I really like Riders of the Storm. All right. I'll let it slide. Oh, what's the one? Five, two, one, and three, two, five. Oh, yeah, what is that? Give it, baby, one more time. That one's a good one. That one's really good, too, because that's the one that got him arrested in Miami. Yes. Also, how did you two not get arrested up on that building for for Streets Have No Name? Streets Have No Name, yeah. Well, you know what they're. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we're gonna keep going. You know what that? This is actually to just keep Gilbert. You know what they're mimicking? The you know what that is an ode to? That is a specific ode to a band. Top of a rooftop. Not giving two flying fucks about it. No, I don't know. It's a it's a Beatles. The Beatles did the same thing when they so the Beatles sat down and did the Let It Be album. They were going to do the Let It Be album if uh, this is on... There's actually a really good Peter Jackson documentary. I think it's four episodes. I hadn't watched that. But it's like but... nine hours. But it's very much worth watching. I watched bits and pieces, okay, but I, I didn't so, see the whole thing. So The Beatles have gone through their schism. Sure. Uh, Paul and John realize they don't really like each other. Out of the studio, but when music starts going, they're right, right back in rhythm. Sure. They're also, they're done with George, because George just cannot keep up with him. Poor George. George Costanza? George Harrison. In fact, in so they get back together. They've just come back on a big tour. I think it's the White Album tour, and then they've taken a year off. Maybe it's Sgt. Pepper's. Anyway, I think it's the White Album tour. Finally going to get back. They've got this grandiose idea of doing some new songs and they're going to do a live concert and it's they got crazy ideas like doing it in Tunisia and a bunch of places. and uh, So anyway, none of it works, but it, cul- it culminates in them doing a live concert on the roof of the Apple, Apple Studios that they own. Right. Uh in the middle of London, which gets them in trouble with the police. And they they basically, they do four or five songs. They do a couple songs twice. One or two of those songs, I think, actually end up, not the studio version, but the rooftop version ends up on the Lit It Be album. So we have the Lit It... So that, what, everything done in that, on that Lit It Be album turns into, uh, into the documentary you watch is, turns into Lit It Be... And Abbey Road, which I think is their greatest album and one or two best albums of all time. So, Beatles, total segue, but that's what U2's doing in that video. Right. And then which is why a lot of people did not like U2, because they put the two and two together and like, you are not the Beatles. And Tim said one or two best album of all time, but really actually what he meant was second best album of all time, because 40, you know... Uh, or uh, rattle, rattle and hum, Careful. rattle and hum live is the greatest album. Your of all time. greatest album, or you think is mine? No, it is the greatest album no. of all time. Rattle and hum live is not the greatest album of all time. It is the greatest YouTube album of all time. Oh, okay, yeah, my top, my top three are Pet Sounds, Beatles, uh, Pet Sounds, Beach Boys. <laughs> it, I'm sorry. Yeah, I took my history of Abbey rock and Road roll class and yeah, Dark right. Side of the Moon. 
okay, that's so cliche. Wow, that was great. I, that was awesome. Oh, yes, thank you, Tim, for your uh, <laughs> your most cliche albums to choose from for top three albums of all time. Okay, I'm sorry I didn't do Radiohead. <laughs> There's so many things that I wish that I could say. We're going to have a music podcast next time, and we're going to tell you what the real top three albums of all time are. All right. Cliches are a thing because they're real. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what it is. All right, thank you. If you think that, go to fucking hell. (laughs) 